ready to keep you company wherever you are. Carte Blanche, the podcast, brings you immersive, hard-hitting stories anytime, anywhere, every week. It's Monday and it's time for your weekly dose of the whole week wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche. Joining us today is Daily Maverick journalist Nonkululeko Onjilo to help us make sense of the news. Here's what's coming your way today. An ethical dilemma as Parliament's Ethics Committee makes a number of surprising findings. A doping scandal of a different kind as government misses a crucial deadline. Then has South Africa passed the point of no return as kidnappings and assassinations become the order of the day? I don't think we're at a level where we can say it's a mafia state. We have an independent judiciary. We still do have, you know, a functional national government, provincial government, and in some cases, local government. Going postal, the post office fails the most needy, while government has big plans for the post bank. And two South African teachers get recognized for their work in uplifting the youth. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the show, Nonkululeko. It's so nice having you with us. Thank you, Lizanne. I'm looking forward to it as well. Let's get into our first story. And it's the VBS Bank matter, which just keeps on cropping up every few months. And I'm sure it's become an almost permanent headache for the EFF, most notably for EFF Deputy Leader Floyd Shivambu. Last week, Parliament's Joint Committee on Ethics and Members' Interests found that Shivambu did, in fact, contravene the ethics code by failing to disclose a number of payments he received from his brother's company, which has been linked to the so-called VBS heist, as many are calling it. And those payments amounted to about 180,000 rands over a number of months. Now, the EFF has defended this, saying there's no problem there. These were just loans, and therefore we don't need to disclose loans, according to the ethics code. Also, EFF leader Julius Malema has been cleared of any wrongdoing by the ethics committee as well. But what's your take on this story? I'll be honest with you, Lizanne, I think it's completely ridiculous for an elected official to sort of have that mentality. Look, the rules are clear. As an MP, you must disclose your financial interest, AVA. And I think the word financial is key and sums up a whole lot of things. Debt, loan, you name it. And generally, you are accountable to the public. So I think the EFF is trying to argue that, no, Floyd or Malema did not directly receive these funds. And we cannot say that. I mean, that argument for me will not hold water in a court of law. Ultimately, the way funds that were not declared will monitor closely what the EFF will argue in its papers and ultimately what the courts decide. Assuming the loan argument is valid, it would therefore be up to Shivambu to prove that he has actively been repaying that loan in the last four years or so. This is clearly showing that this matter is far from over for the EFF. Will the EFF ever get out from underneath this VBS Shadow. Look, I highly doubt that they'll ever escape, you know, the VBS demon because they insist they never benefited from VBS heist, as you put it, despite overwhelming evidence that was uncovered by a number of investigations, including Polyphon Vake of Scorpio, which essentially found that the South African Revenue Services traced about 3.6 million in VBS loot, as well mm-hmm. as other undeclared outcome flowing directly into Mr. Floyd Chivambu's FNB private wealth bank account. So it will be interesting 
interesting indeed to see whether or not they escape. I also want us to focus on the Ethics Committee in general, because I know you wrote a great piece on the ANC MPs that were implicated in state capture and them essentially being cleared of any wrongdoing by this exact same Ethics Committee. Some of the reasons given left me quite annoyed, I'll be honest. Those included the fact that one member's actions linked to state capture happened before the Ethics Code came into effect, and therefore it's not really the committee's issue to deal with. And another being that one MP, Mosebenzi Zwane, was the Free State MEC at the time of the alleged wrongdoing and not an MP, and therefore, again, it doesn't fall under the committee's jurisdiction. To you, doesn't that feel like a bit of a cop-out from their side? It does. I mean, it simply suggests that they do not want to do the hard work. If, for instance, you feel that something's not within your jurisdiction, do you not perhaps make a recommendation to a relevant body to say, hi, could you please look at this because we don't have such powers, etc., etc. But in this case, they've just left it at that, which at the end of the day does suggest that they were let go scot-free because mm. there was no sanction whatsoever. Looking at the findings they had against the EFF and then the findings against our four MPs, is this a case of Parliament perhaps protecting its own, i.e. the ANC, and gunning for the opposition party, in this case the EFF, or is this just another sign that the Ethics Committee is not up to the job of holding members of Parliament accountable, regardless of which party they represent? I would say it's a bit of both, Lazang. I mean, you'd remember that the way a number of investigations across several MPs across the political divide, mm. you know, some of these incidents or investigations date back as back as four years ago, which is quite lengthy if you think about it. So I do think it's a case of competence as well. I feel the committee lacks a lot of agency, sense of agency. I mean, if you speak about state capture allegations, the last report in that commission was handed, I think, 15 months ago or so. And it's only now that something is being said about some of the implicated MPs. With the Springboks currently in France for the Rugby World Cup and the Proteas set to face off against the Netherlands at the Cricket World Cup on the 17th of October, there's no room for distractions. Sadly, government didn't get that memo as it was revealed last week that it had missed the World Anti-Doping Code's deadline to approve new anti-doping legislation. As a result, all national sports teams could be appearing at their next match with no flag and no anthem. Government has until the 13th of October to finalize the new anti-doping law, but has already indicated it intends on applying for an extension. As the Royalettes once said, it's gonna take a miracle. The next story left me furious. I don't know about you. I'm not even a big sports fan. But when I read this explosive article by Daily Maverick last week, it was revealed that government missed its deadline to amend an outdated anti-doping act. Government has been aware of this encroaching deadline since the 23rd of September. And I'm not quite sure what happened, but now time is running out. We have until the 13th of October to make these amendments. Quite frankly, I don't think it's possible. Absolutely. So so the relevant legislation must be adopted by Parliament by October 13th to meet the requirements of the World Anti-Doping Agency. So I agree with you in that it's impossible to meet this deadline. As you know, parliamentary processes take time. You know, there has to be voting and we've not seen much done. We've not seen an agent sitting in Parliament, for example, to sort of commence the formal process of amending this relevant legislation. Instead, what we're seeing now is a lot of panic, seeing that there's a threat of being unable to fly South 
South Africa's flag at these major events and other consequences of non-compliance. The sports minister, Zizi Kodwa, in a statement said South Africa had been working tirelessly to amend this legislation as recommended by WADA, but he's never gone into detail as to where the challenges were mm. up until this point. At this point, we need more than just assurance. And South Africa has not complied by October 13th. The first steps of the consequences of non-compliance will start. And mm. obviously, one of them is being not allowed to participate under a flag, which is a huge embarrassment for the country, but also, I think, sabotages our chances of success at the World Cups. For those who are not aware, both the Springboks and the Proteas are currently in World Cup mode with the Rugby World Cup and the Cricket World Cup. Can you just imagine you're representing your country and then news arrives, you won't be able to represent your country anymore purely because we failed to do the very basics in a timely fashion. Can you imagine what that does to a team spirit? I would be devastated. Yeah, I mean, it is an unprecedented sporting embarrassment for every South African government has failed us once again. And I think ultimately what breaks my heart is the fact that, you know, WADA wants to punish our brilliant national sports teams and their spectator base for the inaction of our government. I mean, they're not necessarily wrong. They're doing what they're meant to be doing. But it's just unfortunate that we find ourselves in this position because South Africa did sign up for that. From professional hits on business owners to whistleblowers, to the brazen kidnapping of individuals across South Africa and the extortion of companies for lucrative contracts. Many would say South Africa is fast becoming a mafia state, or perhaps we're already there. But we still have a few things working in our favor, so all hope is not lost. I want to take us into our next story, and you've probably seen it a lot on your social feeds. I certainly have in the past year or so where people are saying more and more that, you know, South Africa is turning into a mafia state. And for quite some time, it was just kind of a theoretical idea for us. I can't help but agree with them now because I think when we originally looked at kidnappings and assassinations in earlier years, it was a very theoretical idea of crime being out of control. But it feels very real at the moment because we've had another businessman killed in Cape Town. We've seen an increase in kidnappings, not just of the rich, but of average South Africans who are held for relatively small ransoms. What's your take on the entire mafia state? conversation and this uncontrolled development in organized crime? I do think it is spiraling out of control. Um, I completely agree with you, but I do also think that we have not reached a point where every part of government is essentially a part of you know, the criminal enterprise. We've got weak governance, we've got weak public institutions, but I don't think we're at a level where we can say it's a mafia state. We have an independent judiciary. We still do have, you know, a functional national government, provincial government, and in some cases, local government. But I mean, there are elements of organized criminality that seek to corrupt government officials, obviously, and subvert its systems for their own political gain. And regardless, I do think that does not make us 
a gangster or a mafia state. It certainly feels like we're we're heading in that direction. But as you've rightfully said, you know, we still have various institutions that are still independent and representative of our constitution. I believe that as long as we have those in place, we do have recourse where in the true sense of a mafia state, it is when there is no repercussions for these criminals. So I'm absolutely with you. But I also just want to mention that just from my personal observations, as I was driving through Johannesburg in the last year or so, I don't know if you've noticed this as well, but at many of these construction sites where they're building flats or office buildings, I've seen these guys standing outside, fully kitted out. These armed guards with, they have riot gear on, they have the shields, they have the rifles, they have helmets. It's so surreal. I don't know if you've seen that as well. I have. It's quite scary. And that just takes me to the Global Organized Crime Index ranks, which puts South Africa as one of the highest scoring countries in the continent Mm -hmm. in terms of criminality levels and is the highest scoring in the Southern African region, which is huge. Crime in South Africa has become a monetized commodity which can be bought and sold. So Mm. these mafias are not even operating in secret. It's out there. Yeah, it's truly insane. We can't deny the fact that even the police ministry themselves have admitted to the fact that our own officers are known criminals. Just last month, towards the end of September, Becky Kele said that just over the past five years, over 7,000 officers had been arrested for various crimes, including murder, rape, kidnapping, and CIT heists. That is just insane. And you cannot possibly fight crime when the people responsible for that fight are criminals themselves. Absolutely. And I, I suppose what you're asking ultimately is what can be done if government can turn things around. I do think that we need to address specific reservoirs of violence. Much as we had the seven thousand police officers that were arrested, we must also note that they were arrested by other police officers who are still good. I mean, it's not consoling at all that less than 10% of these cops have been convicted by the National Prosecuting Authority. But I do think it is a step in the right direction. I do think that cleaning house takes time and, you know, government has got a lot of work on its hands. South Africa in general needs a strategic response, needs political will and the buy-in of society because these incidents affect everyone. I mean, the harm is just a measurable on the society, on the state, on law enforcement, on democracy and just individual families. It's become a familiar sight across the country. Pensioners and persons with disabilities queuing outside post offices for hours awaiting their SASA grant. But it's become far too common for post offices to turn the most vulnerable of society away unable to make these vital payouts due to a system glitch, the system being offline, or the branch simply not having the cash. These payouts have been facilitated by the postbank for some time, but time and again, Sasa recipients are forced to take out personal loans to buy basic items. So, how will the now corporatized postbank be any better? Our final story before we get into our much needed green shoot focuses on the post office. It's seemingly on its knees as several post office branches in the Eastern Cape especially announced that they 
simply don't have enough cash to pay out Sasa grants. I know Daily Maverick had a really great but heartbreaking piece on this and how it's impacting those most in need. Our pensioners are sleeping outside of these post offices just waiting to get their money. The task of administering and essentially distributing grants to more than 70 million people is no easy fit. And I do agree with you that Sasa has not done well. We have instances where people borrow money to actually get to town, only to be told that actually we've run off, out of cash, the system is offline, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Reasons that are not really solid or acceptable. I do think that you know the department of Sasa is a matter of priority must outline exactly how they'll ensure the integrity of the social grant payment system going forward so that the burden is no longer you know felt by the beneficiaries. I think generally we need strong oversight. Cyril Ramaphosa, he's always wanted to break Postbank away from the post office. And Postbank in the last year or so has been responsible for these SASA payments. And he's recently signed off on the South African Postbank Amendment Act, which now formally separates Postbank from the post office. A question many of us have is that how does government intend on making a success of the Postbank when it can't even get the SASA grants right now? I honestly do not have an answer for you because right now what we are seeing at various SASA offices is them filled with scores of beneficiaries who seek to change their payment system due to a lack of trust. So they are now going the hard route of opening commercial bank accounts. Mm-hmm. However, the sad part is that they won't get the money full due to you know the excessive bank charges. But I do think that you know President Ramaphosa's signing of the, the act will help inject some competition in the banking sector. It will help workers and the marginalized access banking and financial services without being subjected to the very excessive bank charges. The decision to sign that act has been largely welcome. There is sentiments that it will help and ensure that disadvantaged communities can once again access and rely upon its services. But really, I do not know how this will work. And I've tried to just familiarize myself with that. And it's not really clear at this point. Mm. What is clear is that, you know, this act has been signed. The Global Teachers Prize enters its eighth year, and not one, but two South African teachers have made it into the top 50. This in itself is a massive accomplishment, having been selected from a lengthy nominees list of over 7,000 teachers. Regardless of the outcome, it's undoubtedly a win for the children of South Africa. Finally, some feel-good news. It was announced last week that two South African teachers were shortlisted for the Global Teachers Prize. First up, we have Mokulwane Maswaneng from Limpopo. His primary focus is to ensure learners in rural communities, especially girls, are empowered and equipped and exposed to fields and sports that they might not necessarily be exposed to in what he calls the boys' predominant fields. So this includes soccer and and the likes. Then we also have Mariette Wheeler from Cape Town who places huge emphasis on engaging teaching methods. We often expose the failures within the basic education system and I think it's so important to keep in mind that we have teachers like Mokulwane and Mariette who really show the world that anything is possible if you have a passion for it and if you really, really believe in the future of the youth in this country. So these are brilliant teachers. I was equally impressed when 
briefly read their bios. They're brilliant by the virtue of, you know, being nominated in this mm. world stage, joining other bright minds across the world. So what I think stuck with me when I read Mukolwane's bio is the fact that, you know, just in the year 2000, he completed his metric. He did not have money to go to college or university as his parents were unemployed. He looked after his father's cattle for many years, hoping that one day he would get an opportunity to go to university and study. But he was never deterred while he was doing that. He started a tutoring program to assist learners who were doing grade 12 then for about 10 years until his father said, actually, no, I'm going to sacrifice my two cows to enroll you at a college for you to fulfill your dream. So that was quite inspiring. And mm-hmm. Mariette, on the other hand, was previously a biological scientist, very passionate about research, then completed her PhD and later pursued her other interest, which is teaching. So what I found interesting about the story is what she intends to do if she wins the Global Teacher Prize, of course. She wants to use the funds to set up a medical center focusing on teenagers, especially girls, to provide sanitary products and other support. She also wants to increase her church's efforts in sustainable community building, which is just simply extraordinary. They place so much emphasis on tutoring and mentoring other teachers to kind of excel in the same way, taking teaching to a whole new level. Absolutely. I think they're a perfect definition of walk the talk. It goes beyond just teaching. You know, it's also about empowering, enabling others, which ultimately will not just benefit these kids, but society at large. So it is amazing indeed. So on that very happy note, we end today's show. Nonkululeko, thank you so much for joining us again. This has been an amazing chat, very insightful. Thank you for having me. I'm always happy to be with you. <laughs> Wishing you a lovely week further. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap. In case you missed any of our previous chats with Daily Maverick, you can find them all on Carte Blanche, the podcast available on Spotify and all major podcasting platforms.